I'm Megan McGill. And I'm Daniel Chu Castillo. Welcome to Talking Culture. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional territory of the Ganyangahaga, on the land known as Teotiage. We recognize the Ganyangahaga as the rightful stewards of this land. Okay, so our first in the news of the new season. <laughs> Danielle, are you excited to be here? <laughs> our first in the news. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it feels it feels a bit bizarre uh, to be back doing these short episodes after the summer hiatus that we took. Necessary hiatus. Uh, but you <laughs> Definitely <know>. necessary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Definitely interesting to balance everything with the research and the classes and whatever, but, you know, here we are. Here we are, yeah. I feel like I'm um, ready to do this again because I I found it so helpful last year, but also deeply unready. Deeply (laughs) unready. But I guess that's that's anthropology, right? Yep. Um, (laughs) I also feel like this summer there was like once a week, there was like a news story. I was like, oh, it'd be so great to talk about this on Mm -hmm. In the News. And then now when I came to this week, perhaps I was less inspired. But (laughs) yeah, I think there was that thing of, um, there was a little thing of McGill sharing a post saying like, oh, William Shatner is going to space. And, you know, because <laughs> Shatner is a graduate from McGill, we're like, okay. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he is. Actually. I didn't know he was a McGill graduate. <laughs> yeah. But I was like, do I really want to talk about this? No, nah, let's skip it. I, I also looked at that article. <laughs> I was like, mm, maybe not. Maybe not. I, we both, I think, decided to pick something like a lot less fun. Yeah. <laughs> and more upsetting. <laughs> yeah. As seems to be the theme for these, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think we ever talked about anything joyful, but... And definitely today is not the exception. Actually, what are you talking about, Megan? Okay, so for mine this week, um, I'm hoping that we can kind of... I mean, as much as we don't want to talk about this, but kind of revisit some of our discussions around COVID. I know we did a whole series on COVID. And so since then, we've tried to kind of stay away from it um, in these in the news episodes, um, as well as in our main episodes, not because it's not important or not still affecting our lives, but I think we could all talk COVID all the time if we tried. Um, But there's been kind of a news story here in Quebec that um, that caught my attention. And as I was saying to Danielle before we started recording, um, literally all I've been reading lately has been COVID news, which maybe isn't the best idea, but that's where I'm, I'm at right now. So I wanted to bring this story forward to maybe give us a little entry point back into a discussion around COVID and, and how these things, how our discussions might be changing a little bit now, you know, a year and a bit into this. Um, so anyways, the story I was I was looking at and reading this morning was um, about this ultimatum that the Quebec government has given to health workers in Quebec to get their COVID-19 vaccinations. Um, Apparently, you know, they were 
There's several thousand unvaccinated healthcare workers still in Quebec, and the Quebec government is mandating um, vaccinations. And after the date, which was supposed to be this Friday, which is like October October 15th, and literally like 20 minutes ago was pushed back um, a month to November 15th. Um, as of then, nurses and other healthcare workers will be suspended without pay, and depending on their field, um, their license may be suspended as well until they're vaccinated. So I guess like, yeah, I guess I just wanted to talk a little bit about that and about, uh, I guess about just like hesitancy to vaccination in general, um, because we're kind of, I guess, at the point in the pandemic where the talk has turned less to like, we need to get a vaccine and get back to normal to, to kind of this dichotomy between people who are vaccinated and people who aren't and this kind of fight and back and forth. So I kind of wanted to, to chat to you a little bit about that, I guess, today. <laughs> That's such a, to me, complicated topic. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm the best person even to talk about it, to be honest, but it's what I've been thinking about. <laughs> no, I, I do find it uh, perplexing because one of the questions that, that arises for me, I haven't been able to grasp at all the an, an, any kind of answer, is why why would health care workers not want to get vaccinated? Like, yeah. Where is the point of resistance here? You know, like it's not the usual population that we think of um, when we when we read about anti-vaxxers. And maybe they're not anti-vaxxers, actually. You know, maybe it's just a question of timing. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, so I was reading, there's like an article on the CBC, and maybe I'll link a few of these articles in our um, references for this episode. Um that kind of talked to some of the unvaccinated nurses, particularly because there's been a real f focus on nurses in this, um, in Quebec around this order. I think because there were so many that were unvaccinated and because the nurses um, union was going to suspend licenses. Um, but there was a real range. It's, it's kind of the range that, that we see in like a general population, you know, obviously a yeah, CBC article is not like a perfect sample size or anything, but like mm -hmm. of these unvaccinated nurses, it was the same things, the same issues that we're hearing from a lot of people. Like this was, this was developed too quickly, or we don't understand the long-term effects of this vaccine yet. And from healthcare workers who have been vaccinated for other things sometimes, you know, but then there was also the pushback of um, we shouldn't be forced to do something health-wise that we don't agree with. There wasn't like a, a clear reason on the disagreement and those sorts of arguments too. So it was, it was to me like quite similar to what you're hearing from like more general vaccine hesitant or anti-vax rhetoric, um, which was surprising, I thought. I find it very surprising that healthcare workers would be not on board with the vaccine as well. And I, I don't know what the answer is to that, to be honest. Yeah, me too. I'm, um, I'm surprised by that because, you know, the 
let's say the overarching or the most popularized narrative around anti-vaccine in Quebec, at least to my understanding, is that there's a political aspect to it, right? Like there's there's a there's usually a, a political stance that is being taken when people identify themselves with these kinds of of groups, right? Mm-hmm. Um, political lines that also run and on divisions that are not not only economical because that's an important part of it but you could even say um there's a racial element to it right like certain mm-hmm. groups of people are much more likely to be anti-vaxxers than others um so i <laughs> in a way this even complicates the picture a lot more in that as anthropologists i think we we ought to really put at the forefront of our analysis a kind of of generosity in our in our understanding of others that we try not to you know lay down big claims about oh this group specifically is this and that you know we try mm-hmm. to find the nuance and we try to be generous in our explanations of or at least in our attempting to understand where they're coming from um and so if it's already in some sense i i mean it's a very difficult question already as it is even mm-hmm. i think in this subgroup of the of that population it becomes even more difficult to ascertain in some way at least for me yeah i think that's a good way to to think about it as like kind of a reminder in our analysis and in just like our work in general that that you know, groups, these kind of groups that we bound or like communities or populations aren't monoliths, you know, Mm -hmm. like, um, and our assumptions about them aren't necessarily correct, right? Like we might assume that healthcare workers all would be in favor of this. Um, That's not true. It's a, it's a wide range of people with different opinions and different backgrounds. And as you say, like maybe different political groups like they find themselves as part of other groups as well as just part of this healthcare community you know so I think that might be like I know we're not gonna answer this question about like vaccine hesitancy here in in 10 minutes but I think maybe from an anthropological perspective that's like a good takeaway that we could think about Um, maybe we should move on what story did you bring today well so t- I was reading the New York Times and I stumbled upon this article last week uh, that talked about the disappearance of people in Mexico. So it's a, it's a theme that I like to bring usually to this podcast, not only because I am from Mexico and my research is around Mexico, but because I think um, it's good for us to keep us on wider sense of what's going on around the world um, as opposed to you know what's close at home which is also important right but I'm just always thinking about this kind of balance between the local and the global <laughs> I love that you always bring something like I try to look too but you always seem to find something um, outside of you know Canada the US and I always really appreciate that thank you 
Um, <laughs> sadly, uh, this article is actually very hard wrenching. Um, the main the main point of it is that nearly one hundred thousand people have been disappeared in Mexico. It's not it's not just in the last year, but it's a cumulative study. But sadly, what they have found is that we had a certain number when we started keeping account, right? This uh, this record uh, started by the Me- Mexico's National Search Commission started in 1964. And uh, up to recently, we had a certain estimate of how many people were considered disappeared. Specifically in 2019, we thought there were only 40,000 officially reported as disappeared. But then um, Carla Quintana Osuna, who's a lawyer, started working at the at the commission. And she started compiling records from straight pros- prosecutors across the country. And she found out that the total was actually much higher. It was pretty much more than double what we had already ascertained. And it's also not taking into account that there's a lot of people who haven't been officially, like, there's a lot of people who don't go to the government to say, oh, so-and-so has disappeared. Right. So this is only the official numbers. And we can see that between September, the end of September of 2020 and July of this year, there's another, ex- there's an extra 6,400 people disappeared. And wow. something that this article does to make it more, more tangible, uh, sadly, is that they have these pictures of the clothes that they find in mass graves. And so you find these shawls that are torn to pieces, full of mud, perhaps blood. And these shirts and pants and buckles full of rust. And what I find incredible about this in some sense, in and in not, not in a good sense, is that there's a haunting affect to these images that really speaks about something that the words can't quite capture. There's a, there's a way in which this affect condenses to make us understand it just a little bit of what it is to not know whether someone that you love is dead or not. Whether, you know, when they were gone two months ago, are they still there or not? Are, are these their clothes? They may look like them. And so what they speak of is uh, there's this incredible task of identifying is incredibly difficult, right? Because mm-hmm. obviously there's a lot of ground to be covered and of uh, many times the, there are not enough remains. And so... Yeah, it's it's a very powerful article and it's a sad reminder of of the reality that is um that is still that that the violence in Mexico that started in the 1990s um 
through the interrelated issues of NAFTA and then later the war on drugs by Felipe Calderón have not necessarily diminished if maybe they've gone out of the spotlight a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that kind of reminds me a little bit of a book I was reading a few months ago, um, The Land of Open Graves by Jason DeLeon, which I think one of the essays in there really captures that, that um, the feeling of, you know, someone, a family not knowing where their loved one was, you know, not knowing. Um, and it sounds like these photos are kind of doing a similar thing. Um, that book is about um, immigration, illegal immigration across the U.S.-Mexico border. I think one of the questions that come for me is that, you know, on the one hand, there's uh, forensic anthropology, which in this case is obviously incredibly helpful uh, for people mm-hmm. because it offers a way to rec- to identify remains. And in some sense, this awful anguish can be brought to a certain kind of closure, or at least you know, closer to that point through the work of forensic anthropology. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to social anthropology, which is what um, technically I'm doing, I don't know where's, where's that contribution, where, where can this contribution be located as easily, right? Because there's a fine line to be, walked between um, reporting things and making them just a shock factor between being right. respectful com- respectful to the mourning, the suffering that is going on and finding a way to make that helpful for anyone at all. Because when we talk about this violence, when we talk about this suffering and we're bringing it outside of its context, outside of Mexico into the international arena, Mm -hmm. is it really doing something? Can we, I mean, I I think it can. And I think that's the important bit. We have to find a way to make it do something good for the people that are suffering. But I'm also worried that in many cases, it can also just turn into a kind of sensationalism uh, in our writing, in in our images, in our reports. So it's it's a complex question that um, I'm struggling with um, as I do my research, as I continue to read on the situation of my country and, you know, continue to try to grapple with it. Yeah, I think that, like, sensationalization of the violence is, like, an interesting question because I think there's an argument to be made and, and some anthropologists who write on violence and things I think would make the argument that like we we need to see it and we need to to know you know to it, it's easier to ignore something that you're not seeing or not feeling the effects of and um on like an international stage I think like that would be the argument for bringing these things forward but you're right it, it's definitely a fine line to walk between like using these graphic images, which, I mean, you're saying it's clothing and whatever, but that's still somebody's loved one, that's someone's 
life, you know, like they are kind of graphic in a way. And um, it's definitely a fine line to walk that I think we're getting kind of very comfortable with a, a level of violence in news and reporting. Um, and so like that line's shifting more and more, I think, to more graphic and more violent. So I don't know, I, d- I don't have a good answer either, but I think that it's always hard to think about these kind of ethics and and like what are these things actually doing from a research perspective, but what are they doing for the people that we are working with and working for, you know, like... Mm-hmm. Is this actually something that is going to benefit them or or is it neutral or is it going to harm, you know? Like, it might not be that easy to categorize and I'm sh- there's, like, shades in between those things. Um, but I think they're important to think about. Uh, thank you, Megan, for your comments working with me through these issues that are important for both of us and for the anthropology community at large, I think. But we we will conclude at this point because, you know, we never really bring answers, but we want to keep the conversation going. This episode was produced by me, Daniel Chu. Music by Justin Kober. Cover art by Sophia Melian. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. And come talk culture with us on Twitter at TalkCulturePod or Instagram at TalkCulturePodcast. And check out our website, TalkingCulture.ca, to pitch an idea or to hear more from the McGill Anthro community.